Welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director. I am sitting here with Manuel Sarate. There you go. Nailed it. Nailed it. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Manuel, how are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So, Manuel, for the, for the listener who is not familiar with you, can you give a brief history of your, um, I guess, existence in the performance realm that led you to lead the things that you're leading today? Ah, oh, brief history. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, I actually, my training was in modern dance. So I was a modern dancer for a while, and then I moved into theater. And my goal at that point was always to be on the directing side or the, on the other side. On the creating side is actually yeah. how I view it. Huh, interesting. Side. And wound up in Seattle and working up there and wound up with an organization called the Group Theater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and pretty much that was where I learned a lot of things. I learned what it means to be an artist. Uh, and it was a lot of... A lot of young folks, all by approximately my age, and there was there was a couple of the folks who were a little older that served as mentors to us who came from a previous generation of theater, and but it was always my intent to eventually wind up on the other side, and I started doing that, uh, working as a director, uh, uh, working as an artistic director, and then moving on and starting to write by accident, hmm. and then I got to a point where I'd pretty much been doing it about 15 years, 16 years. And I realized that I was tired. Because uh, it's always about contract to contract to contract. And yeah. I was pretty lucky. I was never anything but working in theater. That's true. Uh, yeah, That's I awesome. never, never did anything else. <laughs> so I was really lucky and fortunate. And, and part, like I said, part of it had to do with the, just this extraordinary group of mentors mm-hmm. that just, for whatever the reason, just decided, yeah, this guy may have something if he's lucky. Yeah. Um, and, but I got tired. And... I also realized that for myself, I viewed art as what I was, in terms of what I was doing as commenting on the world and, and seeing how it impacted me as a human being and how it impacted people that I cared. But the reality was what I was commenting was through the lens of theater and that my entire world was defined by my world in theater. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't understand this at all. So, so I was in a sandbox, in a box, uh, and I decided, well, the only way I could do that is, is to break out. And I was also at that point an artistic director. And I was like, you know, I'm about to go and do fundraising. And, uh, and it's like, this is a real pain in the ass. You know, I can't even do what I want to do. And I'm going to go fundraise, blah, blah, blah. And I, and, I was, and I distinctly remember it. I'll never forget it. And I was in the shower and trying to figure out what the, how we were going to be doing the next season. And... I thought about, hey, where are these people getting, you know, good. I, need, I need to figure out another better way to do this fundraising thing. And I thought, well, where am I getting my money from? I'm getting my money from wealthy individuals you know, or from large corporations. And I made this stupid observation. I was like, well, duh, it's obvious I have to become wealthy and, and create a corporation. <laughs> and then that way I can do what I want to do and take care. But... It really was a fork. And I could either continue doing it the way I had been doing it and accepting that, yes, um, funding for the arts is going to get less and less, the NEA, blah, 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 whatever, it's a pain in the ass, or I could go into something totally different that I had no idea what was that going to be. In essence, going through a, through a door with nothing on the other side, understanding it. Or I can continue hitting my head against the wall. 
And if I was going to continue hitting my head against the wall, then I, I didn't have any right to complain anymore. No. <laughs> uh, because I had an option, and I chose to go this way. So my decision was, okay, I'm not going to hit against my head against the wall. And for those who want to do that, more power to you because you've got a better head than I do. <laughs> and I went the, another way. And that meant literally having to stop doing theater because it's the only way you can break out of the box. Yeah. And it meant having to redefine what I thought my goals were. And I was in a position where, at that point, where my career was really starting to explode. And all of a sudden, I walk away, and my friends, people were going, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I left the Northwest, and I wound up moving to Austin, Texas, to start a business, not ever having done any businesses before. Yeah. <laughs> and that business took off. And it started growing, and before I knew it, it was all over the country. But there was a problem, and the problem was me. Hmm. In theater, we are taught to be very self-sufficient. We have to be. We have no choice. Oh, yeah. Okay? But in business, that is, especially as an entrepreneur, while that's extraordinarily important to start something, once you start something, you really have to learn how to delegate that something. So it grows because it's very common for something to grow beyond you and understanding, hey, I'm not the right person to lead this anymore. Now I have to bring in somebody else. And then that first thing that sort of grew beyond me, I didn't have any concept of uh, uh, human resource management, supply chain management, uh, all these different things. And uh, as a consequently, as I tell folks, I saw the, the business went down in a blaze of profits. <laughs> there was money going everywhere yeah. and nobody knew what the hell was going on. Oh, man. And, and once again, that was my fault. It was a, it was a really hard, hard lesson. So, but I kept going and eventually I wound up in, by, this was at the, right in around 2000, 2001, started another company, which was right at the, the, the burst of the original dot-com bus bubble. And everyone thought it was crazy. It's like, you're trying to start a technology company? Everybody else is failing. What are you doing? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but whatever the reason, that company took off. And in 2003, I decided, okay, now I have learned so much more. And what I want to stress is what made me successful in business was because of what I had done in the arts. And I could not have done it without that understanding, that preparation in the arts. Mm -hmm. Self-sufficiency is extraordinarily important. When you work either in dance or in theater, you do wind up working in an ensemble. You know, and you do wind up giving parts of it, though. Uh, you know, then in theater, you could say it's the director or the producer that's the CEO. In dance, maybe it's the choreographer. I mean, but, but understanding that self and, and finding the right people to fit the right role, I took the same terminology from my theater world and I applied it into the business world. People always ask me, how do you go from, uh, from, from theater into technology? And I say, it's the same dang thing. You have to understand your stage. You have to understand uh, who, your role, who are the roles up there and who are the characters that are going to fit those roles. That's exactly what you do in business. You have to understand, well, what the product is, what the play is. Yeah. Is this a good product? Is this a bad play? Is this a good play? Hmm. What do you need to do to it to shape it? And who? And you have to understand the, the audience you're going to put it out to, and you have to understand the message that you're going to have to give them. And all that comes is what we do in theater. It's the exact same thing. We just call it in different terms in, in the business world. 
And and I would and that's pretty much what I started using. Yeah. Um, and and uh, but once I learned, you know, okay, I just need to change my, my wording. Everyone assumed I knew that I had a business background <laughs> that I must have had from a computer technology background or a computer science background. I would say, oh, I have a theater background. They go, what? Yeah. Uh, but I would never tell anybody I had a theater background until later on. Mm. Because the interesting thing is, the minute you say, I have a theater background, well, in the business world, you have a theater background, oh, then you must fit into this box. That's... And all of a sudden, you've you blocked yourself out. Mm -hmm. So what I decided I wanted to do with the foundation was I wanted to change it. I wanted people, I wanted artists to know that they are so much more than what they think they are. You know, you're not just an artist. Oh, when you look at you, look what you're doing. You know, you're not just an artist. And once you understand that, then okay. So this is the, this is the, the talent or the skill set that I have. How do I change that? Well, first of all, you gotta get rid of your ego. Your ego that comes <laughs> from the theater world, which may be perfectly justifiable over there. But that means jack shit in the business world. Yeah. I don't care who you are. If you say I'm the um, I'm the artistic director of a of a large organization, a theater that's multi million dollars in the business world, you could be talking to somebody that just has a startup that hasn't even made a hundred thousand dollars, and they'll look at you and they'll say, "You don't know jack shit about business." Yeah. Okay. So yeah, just because it's just terminology, so you change the wording, and and I and I was tired of seeing artists. I'll give you a good example. <laughs> I had, we had an individual that came to my company and he was looking for a job and he was a director and he just made a, a comment and I didn't, let me phrase, not looking, didn't come to my company, I, I met him outside and he said, I am really tired of being poor. And I looked at him and I said, really? What would you do not to be poor? And he said, I'd do anything. And I went, really, would you? <laughs> and I said, okay, I, you know what? I have an internship position in my company, in, in uh, the, the marketing business development team, and, I, and you're, I will bring you in as an intern, I'll pay you minimum wage. That means at minimum wage, there's no way you can survive and make a living out there. So uh, he also had a part-time job at, at a, as a waiter. I said, you're gonna have to keep your waiter in position to make money over there, that you work in the evenings, and you're gonna have to do this during the day. If I hear that you quit your waiter position, I'm going to fire you from your internship position. So if you want to take it, those terms, you can come on in and work for us. In the meantime, I'm talking to the VP that manages that, and he's like, this is crazy. This guy knows nothing. He's, what are we going to do him here? He's like, he's got this theater, what, what? And I looked at him, I said, look, he is passionate. He is articulate. He understands vision. He understands messaging, and he understands audience. You tell me if there, and, and the last item is he will work for free and he will keep going in day in, day out, all night and won't stop. Yeah. And, if there, and if there is a CEO out there that wouldn't want to hire that kind of person for their company, then that CEO is an idiot. And they go, of course, we all go, yes, those are the kinds of people that we want. So we brought him on board. And within about three weeks later, we started working on a large contract uh, with AT&T that we were going to pursue for, for a state uh, out there. And uh, it was a large multi-million dollar, it was a significant contract. 
And so I thought, well, this is a great place. We'll, we'll put him on there. And I'm like, oh, my, the rest of my team was like, well, what's he going to do? I said, he's going to be fine. This gentleman was like, I don't know what I'm doing. What about... So there's a meeting that AT&T is calling for this contract uh, review, for this pr- proposal review. And so I, I told the gentleman, I want you to go to the meeting, be a part of the team, go in there. And he goes, well, I don't know. I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out and get a nice suit. I don't have a nice suit. I tell you what, we're going to make an investment. We're going to buy a nice suit for you. And, uh, and then I just want you to take a briefcase. I don't have a briefcase. There's some briefcases right over there. Just grab one of those. What do you want me to put in it? I don't want you to put anything. You can stuff some paper. You can stuff some, news, some pencils, whatever you want. Just, just take that. And then when you get there, just put the briefcase to your side there and then pull out a pad and put it up there and don't ever touch it. And just listen. So, and he was like, okay, well, what happens if they come up to me? And I said, if they come up and ask you a question, you just say, hmm, that's a really good question. Let me think about that. Let me talk to my team. I'll get back to you. And he was like, seriously? I said, hey, just do that. But make sure you're listening. So it did. So that's basically what happened. And he said something similar to that. And he came back and he goes, that was just, this just like acting. I said, welcome to the world of business. <laughs> now you have to understand, though, what that character is. Okay, you have to learn the tools of that character, just like a role. It's a business. You know, look at it from, from, from that kind of point of view. And he goes, okay, I can do that. And I went, I know you can. So... By the time we got to the submittal of the bid, which was about, probably about four weeks later, three weeks, something like that. Uh, actually, it was probably more than that, now I think about it. Once again, this is a multi-million dollar bid that AT&T really wants, and they've brought my company in to handle all the information technology component and redesign of this state infrastructure. And, uh, but by the, by the time we get to the end of it, the submittal of the bid, I get a phone call from, from a senior VP from, uh, for AT&T on their national team saying, oh my gosh, we're trying to contact us and we're trying, we really need his advice, we really need his feedback. Can you get him? I said, of course, he's available for you right now. Boom, boom, boom. He was so intricately involved in the writing of the bid and they were all talking about it. He's just got a different way of looking at things. It just cuts right down to the crap, right down to it. And I went, yeah. Yeah, because he knows the audience. He knows his messaging. Yeah. And so... Eventually, he went from being an intern to being to a very nice salary, <laughs> and you know, and people were saying, "Oh, he deserves a salary, a raise." I went, "Yeah, cool, okay, good, we'll give him the raise." AT and T would say, "Oh, he's great. You guys can." Is he? Uh, is you think you might be willing to, you know, give him over to us at some point in the future? Well, we'll see. Yeah, that was that's a good example, and there are, and the foundation was all is all about that. Where does where does creativity, in in business in business we call creativity innovation. In the arts, we call innovation creativity. So how does it intersect? Mm. And where do the gifts of one give to the other and vice versa? How do they support each other? And how does it change people's lives? And that was my goal, is to let artists know you can make a living. So look, you know what? Instead of working at, at a bookstore, and there's nothing wrong with that, or at a restaurant, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But if you say to me, art is my life, and I ask you, oh, does that make, mean you're making your living off it? And you say, well, I work over here. And then my response is going to be, well, how many hours do you put in over there? Well, I work 40 hours a week over there. Then I'm going to say, that's your life. Yeah. So until you can find a way to find the niche where what you do directly 
pushes to what you want to be, then all you're doing is lying to yourself. Hmm. So with this gentleman and other folks that have gone through that, through the stuff that we do at the, the foundation, they've, they've found a way where they can take what they do within the business world, work for chunks at a time, but make easily enough money to cover an entire year's work where the rest of the time they can do what they care about. And at the same time, the, the business world sees there's a value in this person. I want this person. And when that person says, well, I'm only available for contract work, whatever it may be, uh, for this time period or this time period, that's cool because you're, in fact, you're impacting my bottom line, and I like that. Yeah. So there's that intersection that we do, and, and, and that's been a major focus uh, of, the, of, the, of the foundation and looking for innovation, technology, how technology impacts the arts uh, and how it can change. And because our format is either going to have to change uh, or continue to change, or we'll get our market share will get even smaller and smaller, because the internet is is wonderful and it's a great tool. It is for theater. In our current thing, it is it is impacting it. I mean, it's already the largest uh, in terms of uh, 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 media and uh, entertainment. It's it's you know the the gaming world. It's much larger than anything. You know, and I'm including, including film. It dwarfs all of that. Yeah. Uh, and that, but that's a recent phenomenon. One of the programs that the, the foundation does is we used to bring uh, software developers and, uh, and team them up with uh, a theater artists to create what are uh, called casual games. Hmm. Games that you can easily just pick up on your phone, pop, pop, pop. You know, there really is no inner start to them. Angry Birds is an example. Oh, yeah. You just keep doing the little casual, <laughs> you just keep playing. And people back then, when we were playing with all that, people thought, what, is, what a waste of time. What is this? I said, no. Oh, this is going to work and sure enough boom and a lot of those folks now make a living from just working on those games every once in a while some of them have started some of those games and are doing okay because of that so it's just changing our perception of ourselves and that's been one of my fundamental goals wow yeah a lot to take out of that that was, uh, that was awesome I, I'm curious this is just like a kind of a tertiary thing but uh, what does HBMG stand for? Okay, HBMG stands for nothing. <laughs> I was looking all over the website. I was like, I need to know what this stands it for. It stands for nothing. But it, it was done to do exactly what you just did. I wanted something that, okay, it seems like a good, good collection of letters. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're starting up, anything you can think that will distinguish yourself. But I wanted somebody to ask me that question. Because the minute they asked me that question and I gave them the answer, which is the truth, they would do just what you would do. They would yeah. laugh. Yeah. Uh, I was doing a interview with the Florida De- Department of Transportation once, and we get to the point where they were like, and it was doing pretty good, and finally one of them says, you know, well, before we can give you this thing, we need to know what HBMG stands for, just like you did. And I said, it doesn't stand for anything. And I said, come on, come on, come on, really, seriously. And I said, seriously, it doesn't stand for anything. And one of them jokingly said, well, we're not going to give you the contract and blah, 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 until you tell us. And I just thought for a second, I said, Homeboys made good. They cracked up laughing. Eventually, we wound up getting the contract. Yeah. But it's, it's, that was part of the goal. Is let's get past all of this formality and stuff like that. Cool. Really, that isn't important. What's important is make a decision on me, on not on who I work for or what I do uh, or what I've done. But do we, as human beings, trust each other? And can you come to me as a human person and say, as a human being, and say, hey? I don't, this, you're, you're, not, you're not cutting it on this particular deliverable or whatever. 
and this is and if you and if you want to continue the contract, this is what you're going to do. And so, give me the right to correct the action because you're treating me as a human being. When that happens within the business world, I know there are a lot of extraordinary businessmen out there that will that are just cut cutthroat and blah blah blah. And that's that's great, you know. I got no problem with that. That's the way they're successful. But I just don't want to do that. <laughs> I came to the conclusion. That's, that's not what I am. I have given away a lot of money, bec- not because it was uh, appropriate or whatever. It was because I just didn't see the point of what the money was, mm. as opposed to investing in a human being. So I'm going to lead this into, I have one question that I make sure I ask all okay. my guests. Uh, and it's a big, ambiguous question. So feel free to answer it in any way, shape, or form. But this is, the question is simply, uh, what is your artistic direction? What is my artistic direction? Well, it depends on which platform I'm on. Pa- on, on the technology side, on the business side, my artistic direction is, is to change the way communications, the way we interact as human beings on the planet globally. And there are projects that have that done, have been fortunate, that, that have supported that. On the art side, it's a very different feeling. It's to change one person at a time. If I can connect as an artist with just one person, and sometimes the only person I'm able to connect to or try to connect to is myself, <laughs> and then I feel like, okay, that, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. So whether it's as a director, which is really my, the primary thing that I do. The writing, eh, I do the writing because quite frankly, the writing you can just do by yourself. Nobody else has to be there. So the only, I came to the conclusion uh, a couple of years ago that really the only audience that I need to make sure is that I am satisfying at this moment of my life is me. And if I can do that, I'm okay with that. And if something happens more because of the writing of the plays, of that play, well, that's wonderful. Uh, as opposed to when I was younger, when I would somebody would say, "Hey, you, well, we'd like to commission you to write a play," and I would say, "Just say, great. How much money? Yeah. Oh, great. Now, oh yeah. Well, can you write a play about? It? Yeah, sure, not a problem. I could write about it. No investment in it, really. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Uh, so I want to go back to something you said, which is you accidentally started writing. I think. Yeah. How, how did you accidentally seep yeah. into the writing? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm. Um, this was many years ago. Uh, I was directing a uh, a piece, a play, uh, by a very well-known playwright, and he uh, basically said to me, you know, Manuel, I, I, I love your work, I, I love what you do, but, you know, uh, you really fuck up my place. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it's okay. fine, it's fine, uh, totally fine. And I was like, oh, he goes, why don't you just go write your own play? And he was kidding and joking and stuff like that. But as a director at that point in my life, I was like, oh, I want to have my vision. I'm going to plop that on top. And I was never, never changing up, any, changing the writer's words or anything like that, but mm-hmm. changing the, the, the vision, of their intent. And, um, and so I thought, oh, well, that's, well, maybe I will go try to write a play. And I, I wrote a play, and it, it was done. And, and surprisingly, there was a gentleman and there was, that happened to see that, uh, that piece uh, that was uh, artistic director of a theater in New York, a well-known theater there. And the gentleman has died, so I, I really don't want to get into his story. Okay. And, um, and he said, hey, you know, why don't you come up here? And there's this great place that we, 
that you can go and hang out for as long as you want and write whatever you want and we'll bring in actors from, from the city to whatever you need and there's other, you know, I was like, oh, hey, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, so it was, it was pretty much an accident. And from there, and he said, you know, you're a writer. I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm just putting down what I want to direct. Yeah. <laughs> I'm writing what I want to direct, yeah. And so that's, that was what I mean by accident. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, view, um, I view plays as blueprints uh, for a director. And so uh-huh. a, a director can interpret the blueprint in many different ways. And right. So it's interesting when you say that uh, writing and directing is the creative side because I think a lot of people think that acting and you know the, the thing that you immediately see is the creative side. Well, because the audience is viewing the actor, yeah. but the reality, you know, they're viewing the actor, but they're viewing the actor in a play in that in that particular <laughs> word. So it's the vision at that point of the of the playwright, the the director, the the lighting designer, the sound designer, all of those elements that the audience may not normally connect to because they're connecting with the human being on stage. Mm-hmm. But all of those other people on the periphery, or, or not even in the periphery, they're right in it with them as well. Their their language is in a different way. You know, if you're a lighting designer, it's it's a language of visual. So you're you're speaking to the audience from that point of view. If you're the set designer, it's it's how you're constructing the space, and so you're speaking to that that part of the brain and the audience member, which may be not articulating. So, yeah, did that answer? What was that? I don't even know what I was talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> Another thing, and you, you spoke about this a little bit, but uh, I was reading your uh, biography online, and there's a there's a thing that it says where you're. You're interested in bridging the gap between arts and technology. Correct. And you talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious, what do you think that bridge is? What, what, what builds that bridge? Well, it, initially it was about, uh, and this was when we first started focusing on that. It was, it was initially about getting uh, in the gaming world, the software, in the software world, at that, end, at that time there were a lot of wonderful games being created, but they had absolutely no basis in a story hmm. or even a character. It was about, I'm going to shoot this, I'm going to shoot this, or whatever it may be. And, and, you know, and a lot of it had to do because of the technology at the time. But a lot of it had to do because you had a bunch of programmers that were creating. And, and the programmers, their world, their language is in what they're creating in the programming, not necessarily in the arc of the story. And... And that comes from the artists. Yeah. Okay. Even though programmers are definitely an artist in their own in their own world as well too, without a doubt. But this is a different kind of artistry. So it meant that I wanted to bring actors and directors and playwrights to come in and interact with these uh, gamers and software programmers and begin to understand each other's language, so they could see where they could support each other. Yeah, wow. And. And so we had lots of folks that we put together that, and trying to create that bridge and, re- and recognize, hey, there's a value, you know, a programming team saying there's a value in me having an actor or a, an actual writer that can tell a story or a vignette of a story or create a story. Because you know what? My audience on the other side digs that. Yeah. And there was lots of experimentation that so we did early on with programmers and stuff, and, and that's how those works. Uh, and, and I view that as still being an evolving thing within the, the, the gaming community. But it has created an extraordinary number of jobs. Yeah. 
for the uh, the theater community and the, uh, the writers on the other side. So that's how that, that's how we built a bridge. It was a bridge based on recognition of the need mm. for the other. Mm. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. And and that's you know it's like a good relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's a big part of it. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what do you think modern audiences are looking for now? When they come to these games looking for stories or when they come to the theater looking for a story? Well, yeah. one of the things that, that we're engaged to do, my company is engaged to do, is to think about the future. And we've had like the Department of Defense and stuff like that come to us and say, here's a problem. Uh, I want you to think about it. Tell me what it's going to be like 20 years from now, 30 years from now. How do we get to this, solve this problem or whatever? So... About a year ago, I started thinking in terms of applying some of those same tools that we do for those analysis to this, to this thing, art form that we do, to what technology and social media and all that, and, and our interaction as human beings. And the tool set started saying, you know what's going to happen is, yes, everyone talks about, oh, did you see how everyone's, you know, you're having, there's a family, they're having dinner out someplace, and they're all on their phones. Yeah. They're not even looking at each other, they're not re reacting to each other. The, the, the development of the millennial and the Zs and the Xs and all of that, and how that's evolving along with the boomers. And, and, the, and the analysis says, you know, this is what we think is going to occur in a couple of years, is that uh, the millennials who are very, very similar to the boomers, <laughs> they have very the boomers cared about what was happening in the U.S. at that time. The war, blah, there was all these pros. And they, there was a social upheaval. People talk about social upheavals, that this is unique, this is new, what we're going through in a country. That's bullshit. We're, this, our country has always gone through vicious social upheavals, <laughs> almost since its very founding. Okay? So, but the millennials would, you know, cared about what was happening in the country. The, the, the new thing, that, I mean, that's uh, the boomers, the new thing that's happening with the millennials is that their country, whether we want to uh, believe it or not, is not the United States. Their country is the planet. Yeah. And it has to do with what the net has done. The net, so you can, you can be playing a, a game or you can be part of a social media network and you can have people that are your friends on there that you have never met and you may never meet but you're, you're, you're communicating with them on a daily basis. So why would you want to go blow their, up their country somewhere? And all more importantly, uh, what they bring in, their ideas and stuff, they come across through, through the web and they impact our economy over here. Uh, you can put up all the border walls that you want. That's great. You, you want to spend the money on that? You put them all up. It isn't going to make any difference. Okay? The biggest exporter... Uh, the biggest thing that we export out to the world is, is the idea of what it is, the idea of being an American. And not by, say, being an American in terms of being a citizen of America, but being uh, the ideas and values of an America, which, will then, or which are then taken by other countries as, as they interact across this web thing, and then they shape them to fit their culture, which is extraordinarily critically important. We forget, and on the other side, we think, well, they're not like, uh, just like us, because we're not, well, they're not supposed to be, because they're not us. And we tear this down, this, this wonderful flow of interaction, of exporting ideas. Mm -hmm. that's, that's our biggest fundamental export. And so what I see occurring here now is this is this change in how, how we, how technology, no, let me rephrase, as, so, 
this wonderful global community is, is created based on individual relationships. Now, it isn't, I'm not even thinking about when people say, well, we have large corporate global entities and stuff like that. Eh, that is insignificant to the numbers of people that are talking with each other every day that never will see and meet each other because either playing an avatar in some game or on some social media or on some forum or platform. That number dwarfs all the others. But there's going to be a point where one day, and, and we sort of anticipate it's probably going to be, uh, we're probably about nine years out, where, the, where folks that are your age, the millennials are going to go, oh man, I'm tired of just picking up the dang phone and talking. I'm tired of that. I don't want to deal with that. I just want to talk to them. I want to talk to them by phone. I want to talk to them in person. And so there's going to be a drop down hmm. on all that. Call it a backlash. Yeah. Okay. A backlash, and it's going to be driven by you guys once again to what it is that's important to you. So yes, we, you know we we're, we're protecting uh, as millennials the it's our it's the planet, the globe that we care about because of the people on the globe. And at some point, you're going to view technology as getting in the way of that, yeah. even though it's fostered that. Mm-hmm. So that'll that'll so at that point, there's going to be a, a bunch of companies that are just going to fall off the map. Because their whole model has been based on that. And that's, but that's not bad because it's going to be a calling away. Because what's going to happen, and it'll probably take about two to three years on that end, then you guys are going to go, whoa, wait a minute, what were we thinking? That, you know, that we really do want to have that. But we want to have that with this now, this mm-hmm. twist, yeah, which is back to this closer connection. And so it's going to spur on an even bigger revolution of how we communicate. And that, at, at that point, will be so intriguing and interesting. Yeah. And whether it's going to be a revolution of somebody saying, if I can't be there in, in person over in, whether it's Norway or whether it's Iraq or whether it's China or Mongolia, whatever, I want to be there at least in some form of of a holographic approach or whatever, when that person pulls me up, I, they're seeing me on that thing. And when they reach out and touch that holograph, they're actually touching me and I can feel them. And by the way, that technology is not that far away either. And it'll be because you guys are going to say, we want that. And you know, the thing about a capitalist society, a market-driven society is, well, if you want that, I'm going to create <laughs> that for you. Yep. Okay. But that will be an extraordinary thing because it really will foster things. And I think it's going to change even how the arts and theater will function at that point. Because imagine doing a play where you go, the audience comes to see the show, and in there are people performing from all over the world. And you're seeing their holographic representation, and they're like solids could be, and they're interacting with, their, with the, 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 I guess you want to call the live people. But even that becomes an interesting thing mm-hmm. right at that point. And all of those people are doing that show elsewhere That's at the same time. And that, and that same show, could be, they could be the live person over yeah, wow. in Mongolia, and all of us over here could be the holograms that are going on over there. That's amazing. That, that would be extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I, in college, actually, in my, last, uh, in my last quarter of college, I wrote a play that was uh, over Skype. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically, multi- there were many actors that 
are not supposed to be in the same city as the the performance is happening. So that's like I mean, just you mentioning that. Like, yeah, and and there are folks that are doing that within the Skype model now or with the video conference, but it's still but, a yeah. two dimensional yeah. thing, yeah. and you and and that <laughs> actually forms a whether you want to call it a Brechtian approach or distancing effect. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, people kind of go, eh. Yeah. Uh, and you can look at, you know, how is augmented reality going to do, virtual reality going to do, I like to, you know, all of those are not, are just, you know, are just phases right now as we explore. But until the millennial generation says, hey, I'm tired of all this phone crap and all these little augmented things. I want to go be person to person again. I want to be person to person and I want to feel that person and I want to touch that person. I want to smell that person. All of those things, because they're important to me now. And then somebody in the technology side going, oh, okay, I got to create a mechanism, otherwise my company is going to go away, disappear. Yeah. To create, to allow that experience to occur, then the big revolution happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, how can the storyteller today adapt, or I don't want to say preempt, but adapt to this uh, changing existence that we're moving into? Well, I don't know. <laughs> if, I had, if, I, if I had to take a guess, I, I would say the first thing I would do, and I, and I tell these to almost all artists, change your timeline. Hmm. You know, if you're saying, I want to be famous, I want to be famous tomorrow, I want to be successful tomorrow, I want to do whatever, say, forget it. You know, make your timeline 10, 20 years now. Okay? And actually start thinking in those terms 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. what, where do I want to be? And yeah, I know that's kind of vague and it's hard to say. But if you can at least change that, forget about being successful, forget about it, drive instead toward the question that you just asked. How can I tell my story? How can I find ways and methodology? And immerse yourself in all the elements and put yourself ahead of the game. Start saying, hey, be the millennials that start saying, hey, this is what's going to come, guys. I'm, I'm at the front, so I'm writing for it now. So you better create your technology for it now. Because you know? even if you look at the growth of technology as a whole in the last 15 years, it's always been driven to, you know, some folks say, well, it's, you know, it's the technology that's driving the software, the software that's driving the technology. And I'd say, eh, it's the person that's driving the software, that's driving the technology, or this person that's driving the, the technology, that's driving the software. They're all fulfilling, they're trying to fulfill the needs of that person because they're seeing that as a potential uh, return on their dollar. But it's still the person out there. So you get enough people out there saying, this is the way we want to create, and this is the way we want to see art. We, this is the way we want to interact. The market will start to fulfill that. Uh, but that's going to take a while because right now a lot of people are making a lot of money on the way things are and that's okay. Yeah. And, that, and, they're, yeah. and they're fulfilling a need. They're, they're prepping us as human beings for the next level to think differently. You know, I think about what you will be like when you're my age yeah. and what your world will be like. And I don't know if I'll be there, <laughs> but I think it will be an extraordinary thing. I'm fascinated. It's it's just I'm I've adopted this philosophy of enjoying the fall, enjoying that it's just the, there's it's the future will be so ambiguous that there's nothing you can do except for. Enjoy. And I would challenge that. Ooh, okay, okay. I said no, no, no. You go, you go define a future. Mm. Don't okay. wait for the fall. Okay. If okay. you want to make a fall, you go make the fall then. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to, you know, don't wait. 
don't wait. That's the responsibility that we have mm. as citizens. Okay. You know, uh, as a, or as artists or whatever, create the world we want out there because that's the only way someone is going to come and say, "I want to play in this world." Until they see that, no one is going to come up and say, "Hey," and tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, you're a wonderful, great person. You're a great artist. You, I really want to give you money. Want to that ain't gonna happen. It might happen to maybe very, very few, yeah. but the reality that's it's not gonna happen. But if you start having people out there saying, "I'm gonna create this. I'm gonna do that," and people start paying attention to you, so there are two kinds of entrepreneurs, and both of them are theater people, okay, or artists, but they function this way. The first kind of entrepreneur, he wants to get wealthy. Nothing wrong with that. Money is a nice thing to have. Okay, it makes life easier. Yeah. Wants to make money. Wants to do things with that money, whether whatever it may be. Okay, and there are lots of theater artists that think that way too. I don't want to have money. I want to. They want to live in a certain way. Okay, so, but theater artists are also entrepreneurs. The second kind of entrepreneur says, "Oh, there's a problem over there. I'm going to go solve that problem." They're not thinking about the money. They're not thinking about any of that. It's the challenge of the problem. It's the puzzle, putting it together. And there are theater artists like that too. Mm-hmm. And then those kinds of people, when they solve a problem or where they solve and create a product, all of a sudden somebody comes around and says, hey, I like that product. Not I like you, mm-hmm. I like that product <laughs> because I can use that product. Oh, great, uh, really? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'll even give you money for it. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And they take the money and the, and the person left there going, wow, that's what a good theater artist can be too. Oh, I, you like my product? Oh, really? Okay, great. But once again, the audience isn't tapping you, they're tapping on the product. So if you are waiting and you're not putting out your product, then no don't get pissed come. off <laughs> if you know, 30, 40 years from now you say, uh, I didn't get, people should listen to me. You didn't scream. That's super inspiring. Uh, we're, we're about 40 minutes in. Is there anything that we haven't talked about uh, that you want to talk about at all? Uh, in just terms of technology, theater, well, business, anything? Well, I'll just briefly say, you know, and I think uh, my partner, my wife, Anne, may have talked to you about this, about the National Winter Playwright Retreat that yes, we do. Yeah. That also is encompassing that, those ideas as well. Because we, we fundamentally want to change the way development of work, new material is done. And, and I'm not wanting to change a big new material because I want to give more playwrights more chances. That, you know, that's the same story lots of folks have been saying over the years, right? If you think about it, it doesn't make any difference because we're still dealing with the same problem. Okay? So it is, to me, is isn't that. This is an economic problem now. And the, and the economic problem is, is this. If I can find ways to create more jobs for playwrights, and theater folks, which in turn puts more money into a community, which in turn means that the person that works over at the convenience store or at the car dealership has more money running through that whole economic cycle there, then they in turn will want to make sure that there are more writers, that there are more artists and more stuff happening there because they're spending money in there. Okay, yeah. and, and there's plenty of models to show out there where you have where a group of artists go into a particular area, a particular neighborhood, where all of a sudden, and they actively invest in, their, in doing their work there for that community, that all of a sudden, the values of that entire community start to change. 
And you can look at it from an, I'm only looking from an economic point of view. Uh, the, 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 the property values change, uh, and it draws a, another kind of organizations to come in there. Because the wacky thing is, from an economic point of view, if you look at all our major cities in the, in the country, uh, where there is a lot of new uh, uh, entrepreneurial work going on, a lot of a new industry happening, there are a lot also of artists there. And so what, what CEOs and corporations realize is, hey, you know, yeah, I want to go move to this area because I'm going to bring in, I'm going to tell my employees, hey, good quality of life and all that, blah, 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 which is true. But there's a workforce there. Hmm. Uh, they can't seem to get, the, get jobs doing what they want, but I can get them to work over in my, and, and you know, I don't even have to pay them a lot because they're passionate driven. See what I'm saying? Yeah. It goes over there. And so all of a sudden, you, there's this correlation. And where places where, where there is a stagnation of business occurring, you'll also have noticed that there have been artists that have left. Hmm. And the artistry uh, is also stagnated. Hmm. Okay? So th that fueling of creativity and innovation. So the more playwrights I can get out there, as I, and as I mentioned to a representative of, uh, of dramatists recently, and when he was asking us what we were doing with the retreat, and he goes, well, why is it so important to him? I said, look, your whole business as a publisher is based on publishing plays. Are you telling me that you would not want to have more writers out there writing plays and more people in their local region wanting to see those plays? Because doesn't that impact your bottom line? And he was like, yeah. So you, this is what we're doing. Tell me what we're doing. I am just trying to make you wealthier. So as you look, so what the retreat is looking is exploring and creating those intersections. And yes, and you could say it's those intersections between supporting a playwright and how they how they communicate over and connect to a, to an organiz a theater over here or to a community over here. That's one level. Yeah, and the growth of that play and that playwright. But at the other level is really about that community seeing a value for that playwright for that artist in their community, and where that, and all of a sudden, an investment, a little cycle begins to occur. And no, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. It's not gonna happen the day after tomorrow. But once again, I said about changing your timeline. So if this happens in the next 20 years, and I'm part of that, I don't think that's a bad thing to have, because that means in 20 years, we won't be having the conversation about how do we get new work? How do we do that? Because if we keep doing the same damn model that we've been doing for the last 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 years, we're going to be having the same conversation right that we were back then. And to me, this is a total waste of time then. That's, you know, I, I think that's a great, it's a great thing to end on. If someone is looking for you or the HBMG, HBMG, yes, uh, Foundation online, uh, are, are there any online plugs that you can they give? They can go to hbmgfoundation.org. Okay. Perfect. Um, and uh, I like to end my podcast with this. Can you give one recommendation of anything at all? It can be a book, a movie, a way of life, a quote, just one single thing in general. Oh, boy. <laughs> one single thing in general. What's that? I, I, you know, and I, I'm sorry, I, I drew a blank there. That one quote by Einstein. Uh, um, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, look, let me just... It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about the person next to me. And if I can remember that, 
And if that person can remember that, then that person will be looking after me because I know I'm looking after them. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. Manuel, thank you so, so much for being on. Thank this. you. Yeah, this was a great. I, I love how energized I feel after all of these interviews. It's really, really great. You can find this podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud. And listener, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have an excellent rest of your day.